Welcome to the 412th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is February 13th, 2022. Today, I welcome social epidemiologist Sherelle Barber back to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. This is a special COVID calls episode on a Sunday at 8 p.m. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as we're moving to about a month out now from the last of the COVID calls will be taking place on March 16th, at least the last for a little while, please do take me up on that offer of sending suggestions for guests and topics. As of February 13th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, There have been 919,640 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States. Brazil reporting 638,346 deaths. Philadelphia County, Pennsylvania, reports 4,868 deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is an obituary that was brought to all of our attention by the Faces of COVID Twitter feed. If you're not following Faces of COVID, I recommend that you do. This is the obituary of Barry Brent Doss, which appears on Legacy.com. Barry Brent Doss, 46 years old, of Beaumont, Texas, passed away on Sunday, February 6th. 2022 from complications after having COVID. Brent was born on September 2nd, 1975 in Houston, Texas to parents Barry James Doss and Ruby Gail Lawson Doss. He was a lifelong resident of Beaumont, Texas. He was a recovery coach for people recovering from addiction, and he was a dedicated member of Impact Church. He loved helping people, and his mission in life was helping others through their recovery journey. He loved the Dallas Cowboys and would always show off his Cowboys pride. He loved listening to contemporary Christian music and sharing the word of God to anyone who would talk to him. Grant was a loving son and a beloved brother to many. He was preceded in death by his mother, Ruby Gale Lawson Doss, his maternal grandparents, Ida Pearl Lawson and Woodrow Lawson, and his paternal grandparents, Eugenia Doss Bell, James H. Doss. The obituary of Barry Brent Doss, age 46, who died this month of COVID in Beaumont, Texas. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. And, and I'm really delighted to bring Sherelle Barber back to COVID calls. And she's been on the program twice. So let me reintroduce her oh, no. for those who have, have not met um, Dr. Sherelle Barber. She's a social epidemiologist and scholar activist in the Dornsife School of Public Health of Drexel University in Philadelphia. Her research focuses on the intersection of place, race, and health, and examines the role of structural racism in shaping health and racial ethnic health inequities among Blacks in the United States and in Brazil. 
Dr. Barber currently serves as the director of the Ubuntu Center on Racism, Global Movements, and Population Health Equity, which was launched in November of 2021. And her research work and academic commentaries have been published in journals, including The Lancet, Infectious Disease, The American Journal of Public Health, Social Science and Medicine, among others. She's lectured and taught nationally and internationally about the impact of racism on health inequities and serves on the Group for Racial Equality International Advisory Board for The Lancet. Sherelle Barber, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me back, Scott. It's great to see you again. And uh, I would like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic looks there today. Yeah. So I'm calling in from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, and the pandemic is still ongoing here. Um, I, I do believe that uh, the numbers locally um, have been de- on the decline um, from Om- the Omicron surge that we experienced, um, but the numbers are still high. You know, um, I was looking at a map from the CDC um, that shows kind of like the, the you know, low, medium, high levels of transmission. And in Philadelphia, along with the rest of the country, the map is blood red, meaning that there are high levels of transmission, um, though the numbers are declining. So that's where we are here. I've been asking guests uh, for a while now if they wouldn't mind sharing a memory of this pandemic. And uh, since Mm -hmm. I've had the benefit of speaking to you um, twice already on COVID calls. Uh, I wanted to get an update from you on that. We talked last in November, um, just around the time of the election, um, November 2020. Uh, So in COVID time, I don't even know how long ago (laughs) um, (laughs) that is. But I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing some personal memory of this pandemic since that time. Yeah, gosh, uh, everything is blur. <laughs> wow, that is a long time since we've we've chatted. Um, a personal memory, a personal memory. <sighs> I'm trying to decide whether I, I share a sad one or 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 a, a more or happier memory. And I think I want to go with a more joyful one. And so, one of the most significant memories I have is um, the visit from my partner, who actually is based in Korea. Um, back in June of um, June of 2021, uh, we met in grad school um, at Harvard, and he's been teaching overseas for over a decade. Uh, reunited during the pandemic, and um, one of the memories we had is uh, we did a photo shoot of our kind of reuniting um, in in the city uh, in um, over near Germantown, and. We were literally what I describe as chasing the sunlight because we were trying to get to this certain spot before the sun went down. And so that whole idea of trying to like drive through rush hour traffic to catch the light at the um, right time so that our photos would turn out nice was um, really great. It was also it was nerve wracking, um, but the photos actually turned out really nice. And it, it that and I, the reason I bring it up is it's part of what I've, uh, I I call that our photo album from that um evening, afternoon, chasing the sunlight. Um, and I feel that like during this pandemic that has really been so dark uh, in so many different ways. You just, you know, spoke of 916,000 uh, uh, COVID-19 deaths just in the U.S. You read the obituary of an individual who was 46 years old and passed away from the pandemic. And so uh, glimmers of light and glimmers of hope have been the thing that has kept me through. 
this pandemic. Um, and that has either been on a personal level or the ways in which I've seen communities, you know, stand and continue to stand. Um, so just trying to find some glimmer of light uh, and chase that light um, and hold on to that light because, it's not, you know, I really do think that we'll need it uh, for what we continue to go through in this pandemic, but also if we're really committed to learning from this pandemic and doing um, really creating the just and equitable world we all deserve because the pandemic exposed so much in terms of how inequitable we are. Um, and so, so yeah, so that kind of that, that moment, that memory for me was one of the the bright spots of, um, of the, of the, of the pandemic. What a beautiful memory. Thank you for sharing it. And I can totally picture it because in Philadelphia, first it's beautiful city to try to take pictures in, but you're always yeah. fighting against traffic, as you said. But then the skyline and, and buildings and the power line over here, it's cluttered, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I can only imagine the running, running yeah, to the right spot. But we found it. I mean, changing clothes and everything. We had to do a wardrobe change and everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened. Oh, well, that's great. Well, th good luck and thanks for sharing that. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to follow. We were chatting a little before we got on today about the numbers. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I have been at odds with myself about, you know, reading the COVID numbers has been something I've done from the very beginning of COVID calls mm -hmm. since March of 2020. Um, but over the last several months, particularly, and I had a guest on who actually sort of, he directly challenged it in a, in a friendly way. But he said, you know, mm -hmm. those numbers aren't right. And you mm -hmm. need to be talking about excess mortality. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know... I don't want to read the numbers, but at the same time, it gives a reference point of where we yeah. are. And yeah. so I've, I've struggled with that. And and I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'm struggling with it more at a conceptual level than at a level yeah. of like, is the what can I say about the data itself? Right. So that's why I want to ask you, because you can actually tell me. Yeah. What, no, about, well, that's, what about these numbers? Yeah, no, that's what I, you know, that is a challenging point. Um, so I think, you know, before we got, you know, on, I was talking about, at least with the cases, there's some estimates that there, and you know, uh, the cases that we see, are, there's about four times more cases, um, you know, than what is actually what we have an official count of in terms of the deaths. Um, I don't know that the magnitude of the um, the deaths, um, the error in the deaths is that much, but there's still more deaths than what's officially counted, um, and which is one of the challenges I have. Um, you know, as we in here back here in the States have, you know, begun this, you know, let's go back to normal, all restrictions need to cease and we just need to move forward. And my problem with that is that 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 actually gets that 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 uh, diminishes the fact or ignores the fact that we don't have an accurate picture of what's happening in terms of the pandemic that we have not set up the appropriate data systems and surveillance, um, you know, here in the States that other places, for example, Korea um, has to be able to, you know, the numbers are so that we can prepare accordingly that we're, so we're not always reacting to what's happening, but, but we can have a real sense of what's happening nationally at a state level and also at a hyper-local level so that you know, the restrictions can be based on data. But if we don't have the proper data, we can't make decisions about whether or not we should be opening up or what, what restrictions we should be putting in place. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, and then 
even when we talk about the cases, we've often said, well, that, uh, you know, here, the, you know, the, uh, many places, the cases are declining. What we fail to say with that is that, yes, the cases are the declining, but those numbers are still higher than some of the peaks we've had over the course of this last two years. And so numbers do matter. Getting the proper data does matter so that we can effectively in this stage of the pandemic really, you know, uh, do the things uh, that are necessary to, to keep people safe. Um, and so that's been my, you know, my challenge, you know, with, you know, what, you know, the, what we've had here in the States is that it's just that, that we don't know uh, that it is a gross undercount of what, what the real picture is. And that um, is um, not good for when we're trying to make decisions about what to do. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that it also means that, you know, we'll have this global impact, right, on of what the pandemic has been, but that disproportionate impact, you know, the not knowing the numbers is is not good, especially for the communities who have been most harmed during this pandemic. Mm. So that's also, you know, challenging. Um, and the, the thing that I think about are the equity and the justice implications of not knowing the data, of not having an accurate picture because we know who's going to bear the brunt um, of the decisions that are made. I, let me go a little further with this because um, so because time matters a lot here too. So mm -hmm. if I have you right, from the perspective of, let's say, a public health office at a state or local level, you, you're more interested in the case numbers than you are in the death numbers. Is that right? Well, we want to know, we want to know, uh, we want to know, quite a, a number of numbers. <laughs> we want to know cases, absolutely, because we want to know what local transmission is. We want to know, you know, um, you know, how is the virus circulating? Um, because that, you know, that's, you know, who's got it um, and where. We do also want to know deaths uh, and we want to know hospitalizations because we need to know, like, where are our hospitals in terms of the capacity to be able to um, uh, to properly care for the folks that come in. Right. So we need to know, a, a, you know, wide range of data, you know, on the cases. And we need to know, are the numbers going up? Because if the numbers are going up, then we need to the cases are going up. We need to think about what are the mitigation strategies that we need to put in place. The fact that we're moving towards these, like, you know, getting rid of mask mandates, I think is challenging yeah. uh, because that is literally kind of um, making, you know, it's just opening, you know, it up for, you know, continual spread, continual transmission. And, you know, my, for me, it's like, you don't put your umbrella down in the middle of a rainstorm. You know, you continue to have, you know, proven, this is a proven, public health strategy and we have, you know, from the local state to federal level saying we're just going to go without masks. And, and, and that I don't think is that's not OK. And they said, well, it's not as severe or folks aren't, you know, you know, it, the, 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 the symptoms are milder. You know, I was just reading a study on the kind of long term consequences, you know, for those who don't die, but have it um, mm -hmm. even those who have mild symptoms, the cardiovascular consequences you know, um, the, one of the uh, largest study on that came out in Nature just a few weeks, uh, a few days ago, showing that there are long term implications for things like stroke and myocardial and heart attack. And and so we don't know, you know, what, you know, those long term. We're still trying to understand that even for people who just get it, don't die from it, maybe not even have a severe case of it. Right. So we do need to know the you know, transmission. We need to know deaths. We need to know hospitalization rates. All of those numbers matter. 
so that we can make good decisions about how to mitigate uh, those numbers, but also to think about the equity implications for certain communities as well. So, and, and just one more question on this, because we are approaching whatever you think of the, the undercount, pretty soon the United States, uh, too soon, will hit a million deaths unless something yeah. drastic happens. Um, yeah. So that's going to, there's going to be a week, this should be a, a lot more, but there'll be at least a week of, of discussion about that. So then the number sort of stands in as a, as a marker of something that goes beyond public health surveillance. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder what you think about that. I mean, how do how will you talk about that number one yeah. million when you will be asked inevitably by the media, uh, Dr. Barber, what should we make sense? What should we say about this? Yeah. So I actually I talked about the nine hundred thousand um, on Twitter the other day. I don't know if you noticed, but I put something. You know, I said something to the effect that our acceptance of mass death um, is inhumane period. That was my tweet. Um, And it was because I was sitting with the fact that we had just passed 900,000 deaths a couple of weeks ago, and that we are rushing back to this, quote unquote, sense of normalcy. And I got 14,000 likes on that tweet alone, because I think that there are a lot of us who are grappling with the fact that this this is mass death, um, unavoidable, so many of those deaths being unavoidable and so many of those deaths being unjust. But it seems as if there's an attempt to just try to brush over it and move forward, right? And and for me, it is calling, and that's just in the US, so don't even talk about what's happening globally. But for me, it it really is calling into question, for me, our sense of shared humanity. Like the fact that we can allow, accept kind of um, uh, that last, you know, that 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 amount of death, because, again, these deaths are not just deaths. They're mamas and daddies and children now even more and grandmamas and granddads and aunts and uncles and, you know, pillars in the community. Right. They're they're people their souls. And I think it's a question of our humanity when during this pandemic, you know, there's so much of that death that has is unjust and unavoidable and that we're willing to, you know, just continue on without any reflection on what can we do better to mitigate those deaths. So I think, I mean, uh, it, it is, it's been, I was last week, I was just very troubled um, as a, because of, so many things, but I was very, I was deeply troubled. In fact, I have an online course that I teach. About thirty students we meet once a week, and I paused. I said, before we get into the content for this week, I want us to just sit and reflect on this pandemic and the really um, heartbreaking milestone, a grim milestone that we just kind of all had to bear witness to. And the students were, one, grateful. They're like, no one's asked us to sit and reflect. We haven't had an opportunity to sit and reflect. I Thank you, Dr. Barber, for giving me an opportunity. And so, and folks were sharing stories. Uh, We have some public health workers who've been on the front lines of this in different capacities that were sharing stories of their exhaustion. They were sharing stories of 
you know, what it, you know, um, has meant to lose loved ones uh, too soon in some ways. There's stories of how like this rush back to normal, um, you know, is putting kids under five, especially at risk because they, they, they're not vaccinated. And so for people to say, oh, this is the unvaccinated, you know, you know, this is, you know, um, now the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Well, you're talking about kids under five, right? Um, where we don't even know what the implications of long-term effects on them are going to be, even if they have mild symptoms now, right? And so, again, that number for me is an indictment, really, on our humanity. Um, it is, this pandemic has shown so many of the, the deep-seated wounds of our country and our world. And for me, I'm also like, did we learn the lesson? Like, have we learned the lessons of this pandemic? Because it seems like we're, we have it, you know? We still don't, you have no, val, you know, disregard workers. We're still not giving them the kinds of protections they need. You know, we're not even giving that, we weren't even willing to pass legislation to give them a, a living wage. You know, we called them essential, patted them on their backs, got them nice pins, but still haven't, you know, had enough compassion and empathy to say, you know, we need to be paying folks what they deserve, especially since they were on the front lines, very beginning, helping to keep this economy afloat. You know, we haven't, we've, 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 we haven't, we haven't even talked about what's happening to individuals caught up in, you know, in the carceral system and the ways in which we've totally forgotten about incarcerated individuals or homeless individuals or folks who are at risk now of losing their homes because of the economic hardship. It's as if we, there's a whole swath of folks that we are, we are choosing to forget who have been devastated by this pandemic. And we are choosing to move on as if nothing has happened. And that, again, I, I will continue to say is an indictment on our humanity. I'm glad you said it so clearly and directly. And it's been something that's troubled me a lot, that it's not only coming from those who you might have expected, you know, politically, who from the beginning have tried to minimize the pandemic um, for political reasons or economic reasons, but also coming um, from people who are self-described Democrats or independents mm -hmm. or whatever, who are sort of, and this is in mainstream publications on social media and everywhere that I follow. And there, yeah. it goes a little bit like this. Yes, it's been hard. And, and yes, I'm, you know, it's a good thing um, that Biden has done better than Trump. But there are some people who seem to want this to go on forever. That was actually tweeted over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I just have a hard time with that framing. Because what it does is it puts people, like, well, it puts you, I mean, in what you just said, it tries to put that in a box over here and say, this is a person who, who is somehow worried about this too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. I don't yeah. know what you say to that. Other than it's been Yeah, no, it's been challenging because I, you know, I wrote something. So New York Times. May 24, 2020, when we reached 100,000 deaths, the headline was. U.S. deaths near 100,000, an incalculable loss at 100,000. That's what the that. was that. on Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. So I have an op-ed that I've been trying to shop around. No one's picking it up. And I think that's, again, I think it's a concerted effort 
um, 900 souls and an incalculable and inhumane loss of life, right? And you're right, there's these people. So, and then the issue, the other part of it for me is I went to a place that has done a pretty decent job of controlling the pandemic, <laughs> right? I, there's, there is actually yeah. a different way to do this. Can be done. It can be done. And so that's my part of it too. It's like, right. it can be done, you know? And again, it is, nothing's perfect. No system is perfect. But as I told you before, when I was in Korea, I felt safe. I felt like people had, you know, the people in decision-making, this, who had decision-making power had set up a system for if the cases go up, this is what we do. If the cases are going and the deaths and hospitalizations are going up, this is what we do. These are the restrictions we put in place. And there's a clear, this is what we do if. We don't have a systematic, this is what we do if here, right? And so to put that, so to say that we're overreacting somehow negates the fact that there are systems that actually have worked. When I got back, so I went to the, went to Korea, was in quarantine for 10 days. They checked and double checked my test status, my vaccine status. When I got back to the U.S., the TSA folks at customs were saying, you don't need to show your tests. You don't need to show your vaccine cards. Put it away. Just show your pass. Like they, I mean, and it was just like, are you, I was coming through Atlanta airport. Yeah. Wow. And weren't even checking. My the antigen test that I took before I got on the plane, nor were they te- checking my back me for my vaccination status. That was a that's a simple mitigation strategy to to put into place, and that was not even being being done. So for people who say, "Oh, you all just get over it," come up with a plan. Right. <laughs> come up right. with, a plan and then I'll get over it. Because again, I, this is you can't what you. The plan has been get every, get as many people vaccinated and that's it. And that plan has failed because vaccination alone was never going to get us out of this pandemic. And so we needed the multiple layers of prevention strategies in order to get us to a place where we could go to some semblance of quote unquote normalcy. And even then, I think that's even a false, <laughs> you know, a false uh, thing to reach for because normal before was killing us, many of us, right? So, anyways, that's no, that's the, so much there, and I'm, I'm, I want to turn to talking about your new center, but I just want to highlight one part of it. You know, living here in in Korea, so it's gotten normal for me. I've been here for a year, um, and the Omicron wave is here now, and so the government is not able to provide. So there's stress on the testing system, really, for the first time, because mm-hmm. up to now it had been. Um, if you need a test, I mean, I might get a text message from one mm-hmm. of my child's school saying, go get yeah. your child tested. And you literally go. And then with, later that day, you have the result. Mm-hmm. And so because of the stress on the system, they've had to pull back on that. And people are relying more on home tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just even you get that. But when I describe that to people in the United States, they're like, I don't even understand what you mean by that. Like, what mm-hmm. you mean the government mm-hmm. is having you? What are you talking about? And it, yeah. it's a real powerful we should keep telling that story, I think, too, because it's a it's a chastisement for those who say, oh, let's just get over it. Like, are you just are you saying that whole, you know, countries like South Korea should just get over it? No, we're they're playing it for real here. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, I, you know, I you know, that's what I've tried to explain to my, you know, to 
friends and colleagues. It was just, it was just a different feel uh, to be there for a month. And, st- and then the other, this is the other, I think, um, uh, misconception is that it, it, it's just going to be so constrained. I felt so, I've actually felt, I, you know, I, I traveled to multiple cities. I was on public transportation, went to restaurants, all those things. And so I didn't feel this whole idea is just going to be constrained. That just wasn't true. You know, there were things we couldn't go to restaurants after nine o'clock. Okay. We, we just stayed at home and, you know, ate and things like that. So it was just like this whole notion that, oh, it's just taking away my, you know, liberties and freedoms, et cetera. That's just a false misconception. And there's a way to do this that is, I say, this is how I say it. Um, centers equity, justice, and dignity. You know, centers com- is informed and 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 with by with community, um, informed by data, and uses everything in our public health arsenal to mitigate the impact of this pandemic. There's a way to do that, and the fact that we are we are we are we we have chosen not to. That's on that's on us. That's not that there because there is a way to do this. remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Dr. Sherelle Barber today. And uh, Sherelle, the Ubuntu Center on Racism, Global Movements, and Population Health Equity launched late in 2021. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, Now, this was maybe in the works a little bit when we talked last time. So Mm. this didn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, this is a reflection in many ways of the work you've already pledged your career to, and the bringing together of social epidemiology, um, uh, you know, racial injustice work and narrative and mm-hmm. the power of storytelling and community memory. There's a lot that goes into it, and I'm not yeah. even doing it justice. Can, can you tell me a little bit of the backstory and what kind of projects you're working on? Absolutely. So, so there's a lot. So the first that I, I remind folks or tell folks is like it, it really was was born out of the pain and the power of this moment. Right. So this disproportionate impact that we've seen of the COVID-19 pandemic on black, Latinx, indigenous um, people, poor people, working class people, um, the calls for racial justice um, against state sanctioned violence that and other forms of violence against black bodies uh, that we had we experienced in 2020. Um, um, and the power that we saw in global protests um, against those 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 horrific murders, um, all came together um, in this moment um, as an opportunity for us to create a center uh, that really grappled very seriously with the issues of structural racism, the ways in which it has been propagated uh, historically, not only in the United States but other parts of the world. And then thinks about what are then the anti-racism solutions that we need to be thinking about uh, in order to have the, the more just and equitable world that we all deserve. Um, it brings together scholars who are doing uh, this work um, at Drexel, 
We're also recruiting for two new faculty, which we're really excited about. Um, we've also, um, we're connecting local activists and folks who are kind of on the front front lines of work in various areas um, within the city of Philadelphia, but also um, in other parts of the country and also in Brazil. Um, and we are really, like you said, um, uh, attempting to amplify the lived experiences of those most harmed by racism in an effort to, to, to really disrupt and change the narratives around the existence of racial inequities, um, but also um, to, to highlight the ways in which, you know, our communities have been um, on the front lines of transformative change through the power of organizing and social movements. Um, that for me as a Black woman, I've seen the ways that our communities make ways out of no ways when the systems that have been built and structured to devalue and destroy us you know, we we still continue to make a way. And, you know, we saw that in the pandemic, you know, in Philadelphia, for example, the Black Doctors Consortium, that COVID consortium that came out of the need to provide services, testing specifically and vaccines to our communities when the systems and structures that were supposed to do that failed us. Right. Uh, the ways in which there were uh, communities that, you know, our communities came um, forth uh, to to provide thing, you know um, things like food and 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 those kinds of things again when the systems and structures failed us um, to say that with embedded within our communities are some of the answers some of the solutions to uh, these problems now the onus on the responsibility isn't there it's alone but there's so much transformative power that's embedded there right um, and so we are trying to create a model of research that is action oriented. Uh, really thinking about issues um, regarding segregation and housing and climate justice um, among some of the issues that we're interested in. Um, and then figuring out ways, again, to connect that to the work, the advocacy that's already ongoing on the ground so that we're not just doing research for the sake of research. We're doing research that matters and research that can have an impact um, most closely. Uh, um, uh, or, uh, or a bigger impact. Um, and so a couple of ways we're doing that um, is we're continuing some of the work of COVID in Context, which was uh, work where we were amplifying the stories of folks in, in communities in Philadelphia. Um, we've also, um, we're also, you know, coming doing projects, you know, that document kind of the historical legacies within Philadelphia, looking at how things like redlining and housing issues, for example, uh, um, just got a paper, uh, a colleague of ours who's on the Strategic Council just led a paper on, for example, redlining and heat vulnerability, you know, you know, you know, showing kind of the correlations between those those long term disinvestments in communities um, and what that is now having implications for the climate crisis that we're, you know, we're currently in. Right. So, you know, doing things uh, that help us to uh, understand better how racism operates um, and also connecting, like I said, with colleagues in Brazil. So there's really powerful work ongoing in Brazil uh, with colleagues there. And so, you know, trying to connect those dots, trying to make those connections so that we can amplify these issues. Um, the last thing I'll say about Ubuntu is that it was, it came, it, um, it was uh, the name. Um, Ubuntu is a South African principle. That means I am because we are. Uh, and that reflects our deeply human-centered approach to anti-racism. So one of the things that I think, you know, a lot of folks are now t 
talking about racism as a public health crisis and, um, you know, it's become a buzzword now. And, you know, so, you know, some folks are you know mostly focused on the data. Data is important. However, we're saying that, you know, so much of this is beyond just the numbers. It's, these are people. These are communities. How do we make sure that we center humanity um, even as we're doing the work that we're doing in within the center? And so we say it's not an anemic commitment to solidarity without um, responsibility. Um, it really is a commitment to radical truth telling. It's a commitment to really disrupting and dismantling the system that have caused so much harm, but also daring to reimagine what could be right. What what would could replace these systems and structures that exist? Um, and so we're in year one. <laughs> we're still building and growing. Um, but we've tried to create a different model for how to do this work and how to have, have real impact. So I just follow up on a couple of parts of this. The, um, a lot of the papers you've published and, and co-authored are are really, um, they have a strong technical dimension around mm -hmm. the sort of spatial distribution of mm -hmm. health disparities. Absolutely. Um, and I just want to I want to dive into that just a little further because I also noticed you participated in a conference um, last year at MIT about AI, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, um, mm -hmm. and healthcare equity. So there's a lot of enthusiasm right now around how AI is going to be the way we um, gather up all this, hoover up all this data that we need that's been missing. Yeah. And, and I think it's a good impulse. Um, yeah. But then we can automate a lot of that um, and not have to worry about that. And then public health, which is chronically underfunded around the world, mm -hmm. um, you can focus on the interpretation and not having to spend all your time going out there, get the data sets right. We can just trust AI. Mm -hmm. To do that, you expressed a little skepticism in the, what I, the read, my read of it, um, helpful skepticism of the enthusiasm for AI. But let's go a little further with that. What, what mm -hmm. is at the cutting edge of how the technical side of how this work is being done? Yeah, I mean, so my skepticism was uh, the actually the title of my talk will um, Something about the master's tools that was an allude, you know, to Audre Lorde and really can the master's tools dismantle the, the master's house. And, you know, this push for the solving of issues with technology, I think, is challenging for me um, because some of the real. What what needs to be done to advance equity uh, from a social kind of a social structural determinants of health perspective and a, really a structural racism are are things that aren't technical things that are they're like you know provide adequate secure healthy housing for communities um make sure that individuals have equitable access to health care right so those are so so there's like these fixes that actually resources would be nice power to communities would be nice uh the technology is can be helpful, but if we don't address those root causes, then the, the technology might actually amplify uh, some of the divide that already exists. And so my skepticism is that that technology can be a part of how, you know, perhaps we're able to get more information. But again, the way our, our society structures itself in such a way that maybe the information, once we get it and it goes through whatever AI you know, configurations that it is itself skewed because it is a reflection of the racist society in which, right? So what, so, so that's where I am. So where, if we're my, if we're creating solutions based on AI, which is created on a racist system, will we actually end up perpetuating that racist system? 
Um, and if we don't actually address and put resources towards the things that people need, the very material, concrete things that people need, will we actually will AI actually solve the problems? And so that's where I am with, you know, pushes for big data and technology as the kind of silver bullet when we know that some of the fundamental root things have just not been addressed. I mean, some of those the data sets we need, it seems like, I mean, your work already points to, I mean, you've done work on, let's say, the historical implications of red. Yeah, right. And, and, yeah, I guess if, if there's a way to like, you know, speed that data processing up, perhaps, but again, I, I, I'm just leery, you know, because yeah. always the new shiny, the new shiny tools um, and don't get the fundamentals right. Um, and, and that's, that's where I, you know, sometimes find challenge. The, um, I just want to bring in the sort of perennial, and we're back into it in the United States, the sort of perennial um, uh, rebirth mm-hmm. of uh, racist attacks on the the history of structural mm-hmm. racism. Right. And so now we're in another one of these moments and critical race theory, which I can't mm-hmm. imagine any of these state legislators who are pushing these bills in various states against teaching critical race theory really have never read it or know anything about it. Mm-hmm. But it's already having a, chilly, a chilling effect in classrooms in mm-hmm. K-12, I know. I wonder how much you worry about that in terms of, of public health. I mean, the kind of public health research mm-hmm. that you have done and that the Ubuntu Centers is doing um, mm-hmm. is taking on board the history of racism as a public health determinant. Mm-hmm. And then how that also creates structures of racism. Those are inherited and then recreated consistently. Are, are researchers going to be able to continue? I, mean, I hope you can continue to do that work yeah. with funding in Philadelphia. But what about Atlanta or Miami or Houston? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, there's always going to be a, a challenge to this work. And um, what I've learned from colleagues who've been um, and and really I, I consider them elders in the field, right? So folks like Kamar Jones and Mindy Fully Love and and folks who've been doing work around these issues of structure and racism and other systems of oppression, right? Like um, they did it, what I said, I, what in, you know, I'm a, a church, uh, past, a preacher's daughter and they, they, they did it in season and out of season. They've done it, you know, when it was popular and when it wasn't popular. You know, the my one of my really good friends and colleagues, Dr. Chandra Ford, you know, she was integrating critical race theory into public health practice, created a whole way of doing that with her um, um, public health practice works, um, critical public health practice work 10 years ago, you know, over a decade ago. Right. Uh, and it was not popular then, but she continued to do it because it was important. Um, I, the work I think will continue to go on, whether or not it will get, you know, all the millions of dollars, I don't know, but there will be, there's a critical mass of scholars who are committed to this work, um, who we understand what's at stake. And so we're just committed to doing this work. We are grateful at Drexel, um, to have the Ubuntu Center, to have some initial funding for that. We will continue to go after, you know, uh, you know, different, um, kinds of funding for that. Um, and we'll do the work while we have, you know, while we can and we'll do it when it's popular and it's the buzzword, but we'll do it when it's not because it's about the work. It's about the impact. Um, so am I worried? You know, there's always backlash, right? There's, there's we, we're seeing it now, right? Uh, could there be, you know, backlash? 
Absolutely. That's that is part and parcel of how this system works. Right. When you challenge it, when you when you, you know, kind of sh- when, when you show it itself, it doesn't want to you know face it. So will will there be perhaps. But what we're thinking about is about is how do we kind of take this moment that we've been in where more and more people are seeing it clearer than even two years ago. You mm-hmm. couldn't there wouldn't be no Ubuntu Center had this whole you have had we not experienced the last two years. And so while we have this moment, we're going to do the work uh, and we're going to push forward. And it's not just me or just the Ubuntu Center. Again, there is a whole powerful group of scholars who are now doing this work. And I don't think that we're going to just sit down that easily. So that's and just follow up a, a little bit on that, because to bring it back to COVID, it's a, a moment, I guess. I mean, for chronic disease, it's playing out in real time everywhere in America. So you can do sort of slow moving disaster epidemiology and mm-hmm. bring in the history of, of race. And people have done that. And they look at five different cities or something like that. Mm-hmm. But this mm-hmm. is a, a disaster in real time, as you point mm-hmm. out, it's played out over these two years in the United States. So maybe we're just at the at the start of something, do you think, mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of making sense epidemiologically? And yeah, perhaps, perhaps we're creating a movement. <laughs> are, <laughs> to, are you? <laughs> perhaps <laughs> we're trying. I think it's yeah. neat, necessary, right? So yeah. we're so again, Scott. I mean, we've been in a pandemic that has taken the lives of nearly a million people just in the U.S. alone. We had to bear witness to. Violent acts of state sanctioned violence. And we know that that's just the tip of the iceberg of what really happens, right? And for me, for me and so many of my colleagues, it's like, if we don't take this moment, you know, and push for something more, and if we don't make use of this moment, you know, um, I feel like it, it, I, can, I can't not, you know, take, you know, um, I would feel like I've let my ancestors down. I would feel like I've dishonored the death that we've had to bear witness to. And I'd also feel like that I have relinquished my responsibility to, to generations yet unborn. That if I, in this moment where it's been made crystal clear don't decide to push alongside of my colleagues on these issues, then that would be, that just, I mean, it would just, I wouldn't, I know that it's, this moment is what the moment that I came into the field for. When young people come to you and say, I wasn't aware of what structural racism was before mm-hmm. George Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm. And and they ask you, so do I go into public health to do something about that? What's your answer to that? I think absolutely. You go into you go where you feel like you have a passion. I think public health is one of those spaces you can go into. Absolutely. Um, but I tell people in this moment, we need all hands on deck. So wherever you feel moved and led, you could go into sociology. You could go into engineering. We need some people to figure out how we're going to get through this climate crisis and build the kind of equitable, thriving communities that are going to get us through this climate crisis. We need people, you know, in all in all sectors. What we saw in the pandemic is that, you know, yes, it was a health, it was fundamentally a health problem, 
but so many things came into, you know, intersected to, 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 to produce what we've seen in terms of its impact, right? And so, yes, public health perhaps is your field, but it could be something else, again, that brings together the necessary pieces to help, under, help us understand how we got here, but also help us to understand how we move forward and do things better. I think there's always been a, an activist uh, strain, uh, and I, I don't know how core it's been in sort of mainstream public health education. Maybe mm-hmm. it, of course, will depend on the time period and the and the program. But I, I want to ask you about the the tension there because I hear it every day. You get an activist or a scientist. We've been hearing about this for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Too many, too many scientists in the climate crisis are activists. They need to stick mm-hmm. with the science and let the politicians do their, their thing. And I've heard, I've heard that with public health too. I, you know, yeah. back in the Black Lives Matter protests and criticism of public health, mm-hmm. um, researchers who were encouraging people to go out and protest against racism because racism is a, is a public health threat. <laughs> Imagine mm-hmm. that and to try to explain mm-hmm. that. But I mean, now in this moment in time, you're a person who has to help train the next generation. You're helping mm-hmm. to form curriculum. What about that tension? Or is it a tension that you don't acknowledge? I don't think time? it has to be. I actually don't think it, it, it I, I think it's dangerous that is that, you know, we don't support those who see themselves, um, you know, as being able to contribute academically and, 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 and scholarly to the work, but also actually have an impact. You know, for me, activist just means you want to have, you want to act, you want to have an impact. It's not, you know, we've, we've, you know, we've created this, we've, I think we've created the tension, but public health is inherently a, so I came, uh, think about public health. It is a, a, a field of action, right? You have, you have to do something about it. And what, what I think we, I at least witnessed in this pandemic is that if we choose to just stay on the, the sidelines, Decisions get are going to get made whether we do anything or not, right? So we should at least voice, you know, with the with the knowledge, with the understanding we have, we we can have a position. Does that mean we are left or right or Republican, Democrat? No, it means that we are, you know, um, we are we we understand the political processes, how resources and how, and, and and necessary resources get distributed, and we choose to engage strategically in order to advocate for the very public we say we care about. That's for me what activism is. So if I have if I have some data that show this community is being harmed and I just choose to just say, oh, I'm just going to sit here and produce the data. I don't choose to act in a way that, you know, attempts to have an impact. Then what am I doing with the research? Because that's what public health is. You use data to then inform action. And I, I mean, so that for me, it's not a, it's not a tension. It's not, you know, uh, uh, they're not, um, for me at least, they haven't been mutually exclusive. It in fact is the reason I came into the field. Public health is social justice was the first line of my doctoral application. And I believe that to this day and will probably believe that till the day I die. We're almost up on time in a COVID calls discussion today with Dr. Sherelle Barber. I just, um, you know, thanks for describing the work of the Ubuntu Center and, and our whole conversation today. There's something sort of hanging over it, which is a, a kind of a, a deep concern about getting back to something people want to call normal. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, my interpretation of what you described at the Ubuntu Center is it's almost it's a place that's dedicated to like to, to not normal. 
to, mm-hmm. to, to not accepting mm-hmm. uh, a, uh, the political conditions that want to push the country mm-hmm. back into acceptance and forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. That's extremely hard work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I guess a sort of concrete you know, question for you just in the next 12 to 24 months when yeah. policymakers in Philadelphia County or in the state come to you, you get a chance to talk to them and they say, well, wait a minute, everybody wants to get back to normal. You know, how is this center going to help us get back uh, to healthy, you know, normal that we all want to want to have after this pandemic? You're going to have that moment. You probably already had it lots of times. How are you going to get through to them? I mean, I think it's it is it is. I think part of it is building the a, a critical mass of individuals, not just scholars, um, that where we 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 craft both the data and the narrative around these issues and collective, not just with individual, not just me as an individual, not just us as a center, but really building up uh, the critical massive individuals where there's there's folks who get it and 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 can help to shape that narrative right so centering community centering activists who are already on the ground who've done this work right and and it really is that idea of the collective right ubuntu i am because we are part of that means we're not doing this in silos or in, as individuals it's the collective impact that we want to have and so you know and and there and we also know that there will be folks who will not listen who won't change their minds um, but, you know, I, you know, for us, it, you know, we've got to try, you know, we've got to, you know, um, try to amplify these, the data, try to amplify the voices of, and the lived experience and also offer up the alternatives, right, in, in concert with community. And we're, you know, we're not, we're not saying we have answers now. That's part of what the work is, is so to bring communities together, to be thinking about. So what does this mean? What are the solutions? How do we you know, move these things forward. And that is a part of the learning process that we're on is ongoing. It's a part of the the relationship building process that is ongoing at the center, really thinking deeply about these issues to be able to say, this is how it is. And then this is how it can be. Just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time. This has been a special COVID calls on Sunday in the middle of the Super Bowl with uh, my <laughs> wonderful guest. And, and um, a, full, a full disclosure, I gave her the opportunity not to do this call in the middle of the Super Bowl. And, and she I, said, no, no, I was totally oblivious to the fact that the Super Bowl was like, yeah. I was like oh, yes. Um, <laughs> but I just, um, the, just to thank my guest, Sherelle Barber, the founding director of the Ubuntu Center on Racism, Global Movements, and Population Health Equity at Drexel. University and to thank you for your generosity and time and and teaching me and others um, throughout this pandemic, Sherelle. Your work is amazing, and I appreciate you. Absolutely, and I thank you for um, offering this opportunity to reflect, um, and also what you've done over the last almost two years, I guess now, um, to just make sure that we have an accurate account, a documentation that's really good. It's going to you know be really so crucial, uh, so that we don't forget you know what we've been through so thank you for the work that you do scott stay healthy everyone we'll see you next time on COVID calls 